Good evening, everyone, and welcome uh, to the lecture. Uh, it's my privilege to uh, introduce the speaker tonight. I'm Jonathan Leap. I'm the executive director of the International Growth Center. And uh, we're very pleased to be able to host public lectures from time to time at the school. As you may know, the IGC is committed to promoting sustainable growth in developing economies by providing demand-driven policy advice based on frontier research. So one of the unique things about the IGC is that we not only have what all good centers have, which is a network of outstanding researchers, but we also have 15 country programs in economies in Africa and South Asia. And those, that network of country teams enables us both to generate ideas that researchers should be addressing through engagement with the local policymakers, but then also to feed the research that comes out of the IGC research network into policy much more directly and, and effectively than is often the case. It's a particular pleasure to be able to introduce Paul uh, because on the one hand, Paul is one of the founding directors of the IGC and the IGC is a joint enterprise with Oxford and uh, Paul has been instrumental in the founding as well as the growth in, of the center over its first five years. But even more so because Paul really is the embodiment of what the IGC is all about. Uh, more than anyone certainly I can think of, Paul represents uh, a model of how to carry research into policy and to do so uh, with really a tremendous influence, certainly across the African continent. Paul has access to virtually any uh, government you can mention as a respected uh, researcher who has really led thinking in important policy areas. And that's probably something that you're already familiar with because he's probably best known to you as the author of some very important books, perhaps best known of which is The Bottom Billion, uh, but followed by uh, War, Guns, and Democracy. Oh, Votes, sorry. War, Guns, and Votes, uh, The Plundered Planet on Natural Resources, and now his most recent book, Exodus on Immigration and Multiculturalism. As you can tell from the subject of his books, he doesn't shy from addressing issues that are both important and contentious. Uh, and I think today is perhaps uh, uh, very much an example of, of an issue that is, uh, is true, uh, it, of which both of those are true. Finally, just briefly by way of biography, Paul, in addition to the work he does for the IGC, is a professor uh, at the Bavatnik School of Government at Oxford. Uh, he is also uh, co-director of the African uh, Economic uh, Center, what is it, Center for the Study of African Economies at Oxford, uh, and is an advisor to the IMF, uh, the World Bank, and to the British government. Uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce him tonight, Paul. Uh, thanks very much, Jonathan. It's, it's nice to be back here. I... I um, I get this sort of deja vu feeling because I, I, I launched the Plunder Planet here um, about three years ago, um, which was about the, trying to, um, for the poorest countries in the world, whether they could, whether they were going to repeat the history of plunder of their natural resources or learn from it so that the, the present wave of resource extraction could be harnessed. Um, and that's been the bulk of my work for the last few years. So um, 
I try to take topics which are um, where there's more heat than light. Um, and uh, so the Planet Planet focused on natural resources and the environment, where there was a, a sort of polarised debate between environmentalists and economists, um, the sort of preservation lobby versus the, the growth lobby, and tried to navigate between them. Um, Wars, Guns and Votes kind of did the same for security, um, which, uh, you know, in the aftermath of, uh, of Iraq... Um, the question was, are we going to swing forever between um, total non-intervention and total intervention, or is there some sort of happy medium? And uh, so my motivation for working on migration was the same area. That first of all, boys in an area where there's a lot of heat and not much light. Um, and secondly, it's an area which really ma- it's an issue which really matters for the poorest countries countries I work on um, and uh, so what I'm going to talk about tonight is, is what I found for the, in doing my research for the book and I found some surprising things I certainly didn't end up thinking where I started thinking and so let me try and take you on that journey um, the, um, and let me start with something sort of fundamental, which is what drives migration and, uh, and what do we know about it? Right? And um, there's a lot of sort of loose thinking that migration is sort of inherently bound up with globalisation. Right? A, a lot of stuff in the newspapers about that. Even the Financial Times, it's all, you know, migration is just part of the globalisation process. No. No, it's not. That's just bullshit. Um, And uh, just to to give you one indication of that, um, over the last 60 years, if we look at migration amongst the developed countries, so rich countries to rich country migration, um, in absolute terms, it's completely flat over the last 60 years. As a proportion of population, it's gone down. Despite the last 60 years being the big growth of flows of trade and of flows of capital. So this sort of loose idea that everything's moving around, and that's what we mean by globalization, no. Um, it's just not true. We've got to separate out. Trade's gone up enormously. Capital flows have gone up from pretty well zero to quite big. Pretty problematic sometimes. Yeah. Um, but migration amongst the developed world has basically gone down. What's gone up and gone up at an increasing rate is migration from poor countries to rich ones. And that's the subject of exodus. It's the migration of poor country of people from poor countries to rich ones. Right? Now, what drives that migration from poor to rich? Turns out it's pretty straightforward. It's fundamentally an income gap. There's a bit more to it than that. 
uh, in one sense, there's very important additional mechanism, but, 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 but basically it's an income gap. Uh, is there much feedback from migration onto that income gap? No. Not at either end, actually. Um, migration from poor to rich doesn't really drive down incomes in the rich. It doesn't drive up incomes in the poor to a first approximation. The income gap is just sort of exogenous to, to the migration process, but the migration process is driven by the income gap. Um, the income gap is starting to narrow, um, but it'll take some time. You've got a bunch of countries, really important countries like China and India, which are converging really pretty rapidly on the developed world. And that's great. I mean, we want convergence of incomes. Um, uh, we're starting to see that even in the poorest countries, right? helped by the fact that the rich countries have managed to turn their growth rates negative, so uh, converging from each side. Um, but it will take a lifetime before the poor countries catch up enough. And so what we're seeing is a disequilibrium, a temporary disequilibrium of epic proportions. If you could come back in a century, there won't be anything like this gap. And therefore there won't be anything like this much migration pressure. So the whole process of migration is not something that's onwards and upwards with globalisation. In a hundred years, we will not be living in a world where everything is just swirling around like atoms. Right? We'll be back to rather stable populations. But for the moment, we're in this mega disequilibrium. Now, what's more, there are two powerful reasons why migration from poor to rich accelerates. The whole process only started about 60 years ago, because until then, you got a long period when uh, borders were closed. So if you go back to about 1950, very, very little poor to rich migration, very little over the previous half century. Basically, borders closed in 1914 and didn't reopen again until the 50s. So why does migration tend to accelerate? And there are, there are the two fundamental reasons. The, the most important, let me go to the minor one first, actually, and then we'll come to the really important one. The minor one is that incomes in poor countries are rising. Now, you might think, well, that should, that should slow migration down. If the income gap is what's driving it, and the incomes in the poorest countries are rising, then that should slow migration down. No, because migration... The act of migration is an investment. And it's a pretty costly investment. And so the poorest, the poorest people can't afford it. So disproportionately, the people who actually emigrate from poor countries to rich ones are not the poor. They're the middle-income groups. Because it costs a lot of money to actually make that investment in emigration. And so as incomes rise, we're still in a phase 
where the financing effect, the ability to finance that investment, outweighs the fact that the income gap is a little bit less than it was otherwise. So that's the minor reason why migration accelerates. More and more people are able to finance the costs. But the really powerful reason is that the single most powerful influence on migration is the existence of diasporas. The accumulated stock of past migration, people who've stayed in touch with their country of origin, and the evidence on migration is that that is the most powerful influence. Why? Because the stock of the diaspora in the host country lowers the costs of migration in every sense. Information goes back, money goes back for the airline tickets or whatever. Um, there's a welcoming uh, environment in which the, co- the initial costs of immigration are covered. You've got somewhere to stay. So for all these reasons, as migration feeds the diaspora, so the diaspora starts to grow, that growing diaspora then accelerates migration. So that's the fundamental factor that um, you need to know about in poor to rich migration. It accelerates. It would be damped if the migration fed back on raising the incomes in poor countries, lowering incomes in rich countries. Um, But those, those effects are absolutely trivial. So to a first approximation, the income gap stays the same, diasporas build up, and so migration rates accelerate. And if you look at the global evidence on migration from poor countries to rich ones, decade by decade, that has been the case. Decade by decade, migration from poor countries to rich ones has accelerated. So that's, as it were, the the key building block. Um, If it accelerates, let's take that as given, then um, it has one astounding implication, which is that left to itself, um, the poorest countries are virtually going to empty. There's going to be an exodus of people from poor countries. Um, And that sounds melodramatic, um, but if we actually look at the evidence, um, it sort of looks right. First, there's there's, um, there's survey evidence, which economists quite rightly are a bit sniffy of, but if you actually ask people in poor countries, um, would you like to live in, would you like to emigrate and move to high-income countries? About 40% say yes. Now, that doesn't mean that, given the chance, 40% would do it. Um, Maybe less, it may be more. Um, But it's still, you know, it's it's a prima facie a bit of evidence. But then if we look at... Um, I could find one case where we sort of simulated um, the effect of, 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 of removal of immigration controls. And that was, um, that was the case of Turkish Cyprus. Um, 
the, 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 for, for bizarre historical reasons, um, uh, Cyprus had um, basically uh, Cypriots had unrestricted immigration to, to Britain, um, and the northern part of Cyprus was important because the northern part of Cyprus um, was settled by Turks who come over years before from from Turkey and was much poorer poorer than Greek Cyprus. Um, So you had that sliver of a relatively poor population in in North Cyprus, much poorer than the Greek population. So it it was um, it wasn't that poor, but it was in a way. It if you if you take my model of you've got an income gap, and then you've got to be able to cover the costs of emigration. Um, what that model would predict would be an awful lot of people would move from Turkish Cyprus to Britain. Um, why? Because. The distance isn't that great, so the costs are not that high. Um, And income levels in Turkish Cyprus are not so low that people can't afford migration. So it's a sort of stark prediction that Turkish Cyprus would kind of empty. So that's a sort of test case for for the model. If Turkish Cyprus didn't empty, the model's just wrong. Or it's missing something drastically. now, now we come up to one of the great impediments in anything to do with migration, which is the data's lousy. Um, but as far as we can see, if we go back to about 1940, there was something like 2,000 Turkish Cypriots living in Britain. Um, there are now, uh, on official, the official Home Office figure is 300,000. Meanwhile, uh, Turkish Cypriots living in Cyprus has fallen to 85,000. Right. So most Turkish Cypriots are actually living in... There are, more, there are more Turkish Cypriots in London than there are in Cyprus. Right. Turkish Cyprus didn't literally empty. Um, it filled up. It filled up with people who were even poorer, namely Turks who had the right to get to Turkish Cyprus once Turkey had invaded and occupied the territory, but didn't have the right to come to Britain. Um, so the Turkish Cypriots are actually a minority now in northern Cyprus. The majority of the population is, is Turkish immigrants. Um, anyway, that is just to say, that as far as we can see, the, the, the evidence that migration from poor to rich does accelerate and would accelerate to very large proportions um, seems, to, seems to be broadly right. Um, and that raises the question, does it matter? Does it matter? Hmm? Suppose that um, hmm? Ghana um, did the same as as as, uh, as northern as northern Cyprus. Most Ghanaians left Ghana, went to America, Europe, whatever, Australia. Would that matter? Um, and that's really what the book's about: is would it matter? And 
In other words, can there be too much migration as well as too little? And the book's going to conclude that yes, there can be too much migration, poor to rich, as well as too little. And there's a happy medium. There's a, there's a as it were, an optimum amount of emigration from poor to rich. Optimum for whom is the next point. So we're now going to look at the countries I work on, which in case of migration is the countries of origin, the poor countries. So what's the effect of emigration on the poorest societies? And from my own personal perspective, that's what made me write the book, because these are the countries I work on, my as it were, life's work has been to try and see what would, what would it take to get these countries to catch up. The poorest countries have got to converge with the rest of mankind. And for most of my working life, they were doing the opposite. They were diverging. At last, they're starting to catch up. Thanks to an extent to the, to the commodity booms. Um, so... Um, what are the processes by which emigration affects the poorest countries? Um, and for that, we need some sort of understanding of why are the poor countries poor. And uh, I'm not going to say much about that because I, I've, I've spent a lifetime on it, as it were, and so it could be a long lecture, um, only peripherally related to migration. Um, but um, when I first studied this topic as, a, you know, as an undergraduate, um, economists had a pat explanation, um, which was that uh, poor countries were poor because they were short of capital. Um, and uh, I've just reminded myself of uh, the, the, the ancient Greek theory of, of the universe, which is that the world was resting on turtles, on a giant turtle. And eventually, some Greek thought to ask, and what's the giant turtle resting on? The answer turned out to be turtles. It's turtles all the way down. Um, um, but that process happened sort of belatedly in development economics. Eventually, somebody thought to say, why are they short at capital? Especially in a world where there's capital mobility. Um, and so shortage of capital is a consequence of something. It's not a cause. Um, and uh, increasingly, uh, people have emphasized um, governance and structures of political power. You might be familiar with the Ashmogloo and, and Robinson book, Why Nations Fail, where it's basically saying it's structures of power that matter. Right? Now, it's more, I think it's more than that. I think that's part of the answer. Um, but it's not a bad place to start. So if it's structures of power that are partly responsible for the perpetuation of poverty in poor countries, what does emigration do to... What are the feedback effects on the structures of power? Um, do we know? And we don't know much, but we know more than we did. There's been more good work on migration in the last five years than in the previous 50. Um, and so what we know 
is that um, it's a two-edged sword. Um, you know, migration um, on the one hand is the, the people most likely to leave are the people who are um, best placed to, uh, to, 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 to drive regime change. Um, and so there's a danger that you, you lose the very people who would be uh, the most trouble to the regime. Yeah. Uh, an example of that, I think, will be Zimbabwe, where over a million Zimbabweans left Zimbabwe. Um, and I think that sort of certainly made it much easier for the regime to, to stay in power, which it's duly done. Um, Fortunately, the evidence is uh, is not so dismal. Um, that there there are positive feedback effects. Um, the uh, the thing we know most clearly uh, is that um, students coming to developed societies um, then feedback accelerating um, democratization right? and uh, we're able to see that there are actually sort of two effects of that um, when students go back directly they bring skills back but more importantly they bring back attitudes and, um, and it turns out the, the evidence for that is quite striking that um, uh, the students who went to Russia to get their skills, you know, they went back knowing about engineering and what have you, but they didn't go back knowing about democracy. And the the evidence, the statistical evidence, is now there that you know that the students who who went to Russia from Africa to Russia to train, um, no effect on uh, accelerating political reform in Africa. But the students who went from Africa to democratic countries to train, that accelerate reform. Not just from Africa, from Latin America, from Asia, it's the same effect. Right? So that flow of students uh, is highly benign in accelerating um, uh, political reform. Um, there's a second effect, um, which is that um, students coming um, eventually become the leaders of the future. And, you know, it's a fair bet that in this room um, one or two of you um, will become leaders in your countries in the future. Yeah? And the good news is that we can show that, um, first, that your skills, the fact that you're educated, will make you a better leader. There's actually brilliant work done right here in the LSE on that by Tim Besley, uh, educated leaders do a better job. Yeah. Um, but there's also that democratization effect. Um, that having been exposed to a, a functioning democracy, um, that also makes leaders better leaders. And sure enough, somebody's actually now done the work on that so that they can even show that, you know, that, that um, controlling for the amount of education, the amount of skills you've got, where you are educated, that also makes you a better leader. Yeah. So, 
the, you get your skills in Russia, you're not as good a leader as um, if you got your skills in a democratic society. So that process of migration for study, maybe also for quite a long period of work, but then ending up back in your country as a leader is wholly benign. Um, how powerful is it? Um, there's limits. Um, there's an inclination to exaggerate um, the importance of, of migration because a lot of the people writing on this are themselves migrants. Um, and if you think about it, the great mistake America made on Iraq was because the Iraqi diaspora in America got to the leadership in America and said, you know, don't worry, we'll be able to handle the, the reform process. You just go and do the invasion and we'll look after Iraq henceforth. And that was totally and utterly wrong. Right? Um, so diasporas massively exaggerate their own importance um, in the, the, their societies, in their countries of origin. Um, a good uh, sort of deflator of, uh, of, of expectations is to compare um, Cap Verde um, and Eritrea. They are the two countries in Africa with by far the highest rates of emigration. They're both enormous for rather different reasons. Cap Verde, because it's an island and small islands tend to have very fast, very high emigration. Um, Eritrea, because it had 20, 30 years of, of violent conflict, and conflict tends to, to encourage people to leave. Uh, so here we've got two countries with the same massive uh, rate of emigration. And so feedback processes from that emigration onto the domestic politics. And Cap Verde comes out, there's a, there's a, there's a good African index of, of governance, which is Mo Ibrahim's index. Um, there are lots of indices, and they, but Mo Ibrahim's I'll use because it's an African ind index. And top of that index is Cap Verde. Um, indeed, the, the former president of Cap Verde won the last Mo Ibrahim $5 million prize for good leadership. Um, but who's bottom of that Mo Ibrahim index? Eritrea. Um, so the same process of massive emigration is consistent with both the very best governance in Africa and the very worst. So the feedback effects can't be that overwhelming. Um, that's at the political level. There are also feedbacks at the social level. Um, and a lot of social behaviours in poor countries are dysfunctional. One um, measure of that, one aspect of that is fertility decisions. Um, and there's, uh, there's now, again, very recent good research evidence that um, migrants coming to lower fertility environments themselves, if they then adopt the, the culture of the host society, they then feed back information onto their relatives who stay behind, and the relatives 
then themselves adjust their fertility behavior. So ideas flow back even if um, migrants themselves don't flow back. So that's the political and the social. Um, finally, the economic. Um, after all, I'm an economist. I've come to the view that um, economics isn't always center stage on migration, but, uh, but let's do the economics. Um, the, um, the stuff that economists have worked hardest on is looking at the effect of uh, emigration on skills. And if we go back 40 years, um, we get people like Bagwati saying the problem is a brain drain. Um, and then if we go back 15 years, there's Odette Stark saying, no, that's wrong. Um, uh, there's actually a brain gain. And this, this bit's subtle, and it's clever, um, and it's right up to a point. And Odette Stark's idea was that um, if um, there's a chance of your education leading to the huge prize of being able to emigrate and get a, get a decent job in a high-income country, that is a big incentive to get education. And more people will go for that incentive than actually emigrate. So that you raise the returns to emigration and a lot of the people who are then lured into education because of that prospect of emigration don't end up emigrating. Um, an analogy would be um, premium bonds but it's probably not an analogy that works very well with this audience because I can't imagine that many of you actually buy premium bonds but um, premium bonds are you know, a British, long running British savings system where um, you buy a bond and there's a small chance that you win a prize and a lot more people buy the bonds than win the prize and that lures a lot of people into saving um, so we've got brain drain idea, brain gain idea. Um, so 40 years ago it was all brain drain ideas, 15 years ago it was all brain gain ideas. The last three years people have finally done the work, let's put these things together and see how they add up. What's the net effect? Is it brain drain? Is it brain gain? And the answer, as in so much in economics, is it depends. Right? But, but we know what it depends on, um, and so we're actually able to say, ah, here it's brain gain, there it's brain drain. So what's here and what's there? And here, where is it brain gain? It turns out that brain gain happens when the rate of emigration is fairly modest. It kind of makes sense that you've got the, the prize, but you're not, um, not many people are, are actually leaving. Um, so which are the societies that have um, fairly, fairly low levels of migration? And there's one thing that determines this, um, which is nothing to do with anything I've said so far, and it's the size of the country. It's the population of the country. Basically, big countries have low rates of emigration. Small countries have high rates of emigration. That's why Cap Verde, a small island, 
has a very high rate of emigration. And so the countries that really get the brain gain are the big countries. China, India. They've done just great. So some people emigrate. That lures a lot of people, a lot of Chinese and Indians, into getting education. And so there's a big brain gain. And the countries which are um, where it's a brain drain are the little countries. Um, if you add to being little the fact that um, your economy is in a mess, then you're hemorrhaging. Um, uh, three or four years ago, I worked on Haiti. Um, Banky Moon sent me once he read the bottom billion, he decided that Haiti was a classic bottom billion. So he said, go and see, you know, you've written a book about it, see what you can do about it. Yeah. Um, I actually managed to do something. I managed to build a, and come up with an idea for, a, for a gar garments factories. And um, a, a team actually implemented it. Put a, there's now a, in November they, they opened a, last November they opened a big garments factory on the north coast of, of Haiti, away from the uh, earthquake zone. Um, it's something I'm enormously proud of, which is why I tell you. Um, um, but let me add that um, there's a campaign against it um, because, and you won't believe this. But under the, it meant building a new city on the coast, right? And uh, building this new town, um, it was discovered that underneath the rocks um, were some shy lizards. And so there was a campaign, an environmentalist campaign in America against building this town um, because um, it was endangering these particular shy lizards, right? Um, I was actually phoned up by American newspapers to say, you know, are you endangering shy lizards? Um, uh, um, the fact that 200,000 Haitians had died in an earthquake because they were living on a, you know, Port-au-Prince is on a earth, an earthquake zone, um, didn't, you know, it was endangered lizards that mattered, not endangered Haitians. Anyway, sorry, that's all a detour. Right? Um, uh, but Haiti... Has uh, loses something like 85% of its educated young people. And that's debilitating. It's brain drain big time. If you're losing 85% of your educated people, you can't get started. And so hate is in a trap where you educate, people leave. But it turns out that the small country effect, you don't have to be that small. And even if you're doing well, um, you're in the brain drain territory. So, for example, Ghana, which is not that small and pretty successful, you know, basically the most successful country in Africa, it's brain drain. That's the net effect. Um, now, that's taking a rather narrow view of of education, of just counting the number of people who are educated. Um, there's a, a more subtle concept um, which goes back to, uh, to George Akerlof, Nobel Prize winner, um, which is a motivation drain. 
And, um, and that works like this. So some of you may be familiar with George Akerlof's little book, Identity Economics, which has been the culmination of, a, of 10 years of work by Akerlof. A brilliant little book. I recommend it. And um, uh, he poses the, the idea of what makes a, an effective organization. And an effective organization is one in which the workers buy into the objectives of the organization. So, so it's, a, it's a motivation thing. Um, and uh, you, know, you can think of this across all sorts of organizations. Take a school. You, know, you can either have teachers who buy into the objective of teaching kids, um, or you can uh, have teachers who, who don't buy into that objective and just um, you know, are looking for opportunistic ways of, of not doing their job. Um, now, a lot of Africa suffers from opportunistic teachers, basically. The, the, the uh, people who don't, you know, the, the, for example, Tanzania, the average um, teacher teaches for two hours a day. Um, so there's a motivation problem. But what Akalov uh, postulated was that um, the, um, the people who emigrate are the, uh, are the more motivated ones. They want to go and work in an effective organization which can harness their skills. And if that happens too much, then the people left behind, um, the motivated are in a minority, and then they sort of stick out like a sore thumb. Where the evidence for that is strongest is not poor countries to rich countries, but it's in Amer within America, the um, emigration of African-American middle class from the ghettos to, um, to, the, to the rest of America. And the feedback effect on the African-American uh, ghettos uh, has been established by scholars to, be, to have this, this negative effect that basically it's the highly motivated who are leaving and that makes it harder for the people to stay behind um, to, uh, to, to buy into the, the motivation model. Um, so that's the, the main economic story is skills and motivation. And then there's a second story which is remittances. And remittances are a big deal about $400 billion of remittances from migrants in, poor, in rich countries remitting to poor countries. So it's $400 billion, a lot of money. It's much bigger than aid. Um, uh, but um, a lot of the, the, the big remittances are going to... Um, China and India, just because there are a lot of Chinese and a lot of Indians. Um, if we look at it as a proportion of uh, income in poor countries, the poorest countries, it's a proportion, it's about 12%. Sorry, it's about 6%. Um, so it's there, but it's not huge. It's raising incomes of the people left behind by about 6% if we just treated the remittances and added it to the income. But of course that's uh, exaggerating the effect because if the people hadn't left they'd be working and earning. So the typical remittance is about $1,000 per year. So if you stay behind 
you'd only have to produce three dollars a day to be to be over that basically um, so in terms of the incomes of uh, of the uh, countries of origin um, remittances I don't think we can argue that remittances raise incomes they might raise per capita incomes a bit because there are fewer capitas there uh, but it's a small effect um, there is a more benign effect which is remittances as insurance um, and this is linked to the sort of spread of mobile phones so that um, migrants are better able to stay in touch with their uh, families and countries of origin and so they're able to respond to news and the key news is income shocks and researchers have been able to establish that when families back home have adverse income shocks the migrants send more money so that's a form of insurance um, which is good as far as it goes Um, but I think the remittances are a sort of basically they're a palliative rather than a a driver of change so the big driver of change would be the political processes to the extent that it happens let me turn now to the effect on host countries so just to to wrap up on the countries of origin um, some migration is unambiguously better than no emigration it provides this uh, uh, brain gain effect and it provides remittances and it provides the political and social feedbacks that promotes change at home but you can have too much emigration as well as too little if you have too much you're Haiti, you're stuck so there's a happy medium rate of emigration let's have a look at the host countries now so the high income countries where people come to and back to that point about migration accelerating and the implication of that for host countries that matters is not the one that everybody obsesses about what everybody obsesses is what's the effect on wages and the effect on wages turns out to be trivial beyond belief basically Um, uh, if you there's, there's basically no evidence that Um, immigration drives wages down Um, if anything it pushes them up um, but not by much it's a totally second order effect the the key group uh, whose wages do get driven down by immigration are the existing stock of immigrants because the people who immigrants really compete with is each other so if we were worrying about wages the only group which should be opposing immigration is immigrants Um, but the the real conclusion from that is that the wage effects are just second order Um, um, so what is first order and I think first order uh, is the effects on diversity what immigration clearly does is increase social diversity and some social diversity is better than no social diversity but I'm going to argue you can have too much diversity as well as too little Um, why is some diversity better than no diversity 
there are two gains from diversity. Um, one is there's some evidence that diversity stimulates innovation. Not so surprising. If everybody's the same, there's a limit to the flow of new ideas. So diversity stimulates innovation. Um, and then the other effect of diversity is variety. The more diversity, the more variety there is in consumption. So, you've got two pluses. Both of those pluses from diversity are subject to diminishing resilience. That is to say, as you keep on adding diversity, the gains keep going up, but the, but the marginal gain gets smaller and smaller. And now what are the costs of rising diversity? Well, um, here, the 99% of the evidence is from poor countries, not from rich ones, from the countries I work on. And people like me who work on poor countries, uh, an absolutely bog-standard result is that uh, they've got too much social diversity. Diversity is a problem. And diversity is, we've got very good micro-evidence and very good macro-evidence for that. The micro-evidence is just that um, you take uh, people who are heterogeneous and, they, and cooperation goes down. Right? Standard um, set of results that uh, people find it harder to cooperate. Um, the macro-evidence, um, the most exciting macro-evidence... Um, occurred, came out just after I uh, finished Exodus, um, which is the out-of-Africa hypothesis, which came out in the American Economic Review earlier this year, um, which is just looking at, um, at uh, cultural diversity country by country around the world and what they show from that. They're really at that, both to the level of income and the growth of income, that there's an optimal amount of cultural diversity. You can have too little cultural diversity, you can have too much. Um, So, um, as I say, for people working on developing countries, that's not controversial. uh, When you look at it just from a lens of Britain, um, people get terribly uptight. uh, You're apparently saying, you know... um, uh, Britain has had too much diversity. That's not what I'm saying at all. Right? I'm not making any statements about the level of diversity in Britain. I'm saying that there is an optimum amount of diversity in any society. I can't say what the optimum amount of diversity is in Britain. What I can say is that all high-income societies, remember, are on that accelerator. And that accelerator is taking you to rising diversity. Yeah? Um, When I wrote Exodus, um, near the end of writing it, um, a a hypothesis sort of jumped out of what I was writing, um, but I wasn't able to test it. And uh, and here's the hypothesis. that um, So immigration is increasing diversity, but what's reducing diversity is the rate of absorption of immigrants into society my grandfather was an immigrant Um, he came from uh, an impoverished village in 
Germany. He was uh, one of eight kids of, a, of the village gravedigger who was drunk. Um, and so he had the good sense to get out. Yeah? Um, lots of Germans tried to get out from Germany in the 1860s, 70s, 80s. The ones who got a bit of money went to America. And the ones with no money at all staggered across the channel. And he, he managed to get as far as Bradford. Right? Um, uh, but, I'm, but I'm absorbed. You know? I, I'm no use. I'm not part of the German diaspora. My grandfather was. He went to a, a part of Bradford which was already so stuffed with Germans, it was called Little Germany. Right? Um, but, I'm, but I'm useless to anybody from Ernsbach who wants to come to Bradford. Um, though in a reversal of fortunes, um, I have to say nobody in their right mind would now want to come from Ernsbach, right? I mean, it's a, it's a very high-income village. Um, but that rate of absorption varies um, according to cultural distance. So the hypothesis I put into um, Exodus, that I wasn't able to test it, was that the, the wider the cultural difference between the country of origin and the host country, the slower will be the rate of absorption. That seems fairly likely. But as slower the rate of absorption, then for any given rate of migration, the more rapidly would the diaspora build up. You've got migration feeding into the diaspora, absorption draining out of the diaspora, as people like me absorb. And so the wider the cultural distance the more rapidly the diaspora would build up. Why does that matter? Well, remember where we started, the diaspora is the big accelerator of migration. Right? So the hypothesis in Exodus was, well, that, that must imply that um, the, more dis the more culturally distant groups of immigrants, the diasporas absorb more slowly, and so the rate of immigration accelerates more rapidly. Um, and that means that the diversity of society gets, society becomes more diverse um, because the, the more culturally distant groups are um, growing more rapidly than the culturally proximate groups. So in Exodus, that was just a hypothesis. Um, uh, with my colleague, Anka Huffler, we, thanks to the Out of Africa new data set, we've actually been able to test that. And to my utter amazement, um, uh, it jumped off the econometric results straight off. Um, so uh, um, that will be the next article, as it were, that you're getting a foretaste of that. Um, so um, that tells us that um, left to itself, uncontrolled migration will eventually take diversity to a level at which, is, at which it is excessive. You move from, you know, Britain in 1950 was too underverse. If we accelerate immigration, then at some stage in the future, all high-income societies become too diverse. So, now let's turn to, um, to policy in my last five minutes. And the con there's only one... Remember, there are two effects of migration, the effects on the poor countries and the effects on the high-income countries. And both 
you have qualitatively the same result. Some migration is better than no migration, but migration left to itself will accelerate to the point where you get too much migration. Too much migration for the countries of origin, they turn into Haiti. Too much migration for the host societies, they become too diverse. And what does the diversity do? It weakens trust, it weakens cooperation, it weakens generosity. Um, where is the control point? The control point is not in the policy armory of the poorest countries. No poor country can or should control the rate of emigration. The only country that really controls its rate of emigration is North Korea. And we don't want to see, you know, that is not a policy recommendation, right? Um, uh, actually, Eritrea tries, um, um, which, which shows, you know, it's, 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 uh, which, 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 is, which is a disgrace. So the, the only control point for the rate of emigration from poor societies is the rate of immigration into rich ones. And so part of what Exodus is about is trying to move to a more intelligent discussion of immigration controls in rich societies. That if we care about poor countries, we've got to move on from the proposition that any immigration controls are just a load of racism. Right? Immigration controls are going to be a feature of this disequilibrium phase until the poorest countries catch up. Right? In 100 years, they won't be needed because the poorest countries will have caught up. That income gap will have narrowed sufficiently that uh, the rates of migration flow will be, will be manageable from the point of view of the poorer societies. But we've got a, a few decades in which immigration controls are going to be increasingly important, not diminishing importance. They're not a vestige, of, they're not an anachronism from the past. They're something that's going to be important in the future because of that acceleration point. Um, so the issue is not, do we have immigration controls? Should we? Of course we should. The issue is, how should they be designed? And the tragedy of immigration policies in high-income countries is that they are disastrously misdesigned. They've been basically set by pressure from the tabloids rather than any sensible analysis because discussion of immigration controls has just degenerated into a shouting match about ethical values rather than looking at um, what actually makes sense. So I'll end with um, four uh, errors in present migration policy, um, which applies to Britain but applies in varying degrees to all high-income countries. And the first one is that when countries, when high-income countries do immigration controls, the easiest component of immigration to control is students. That's what Britain's been doing, squeezing down the number of students. And yet, the clearest thing we know 
about the effect of emigration on poor countries is that student emigration is beneficial. And so far from that being scaled down, that should be massively scaled up. And so we need to redesign our immigration controls so that we don't meet some damn target by squeezing out the very people who are most beneficial to poor countries, which is students. So that's lesson one. Lesson two, or error two, is at the moment Britain um, has an immigration target um, which is defined net. Uh, It's immigration minus emigration. So if, uh, if 10 million Chinese came into Britain next year and 10 million Brits left, um, we'd have zero net migration. Right? We'd have had a massive increase in diversity, but we'd have met zero migration. Right? So um, you get it, right? Um, uh, and I've nothing against Chinese, right? Um, but, um, but 10 million of them would certainly change Britain. So we need to just get clear that the, the fundamentally um, why high-income countries should be concerned about migration is partly the impact on the poorest countries, where, as I said, the key thing is students. But the other is some sense about how much diversity they want. And you should, you know, all high-income societies need some discussion of how much diversity is sensible. Once you've got some sense of diversity, the amount of diversity you want that's sensible, then the next issue is, well, um, how much migration do you need depends upon how rapidly your immigrants absorb. And that depends upon a load of policies around uh, cultural absorption. And again, there's no... There's no right answer to that, but you choose some level of diversity, you choose some policies towards cultural absorption, and that then, once you've got those two numbers, then the rate of of immigration which sustains that level of diversity just drops out. We've done none of that, none of that. Um, Let me close with actually one final uh, concern, which which is going to be controversial. And this is um, emigration from countries uh, which are in conflict, which are basically fragile and failing states. And what should we do there? And in Exodus, I have two proposals. One you'll all like and one you'll all hate. And the one you'll all like is that we must have generous asylum. Countries that are in the throes of conflict and violence um, it's a vital matter that people can get out and be kept safe and so we need a more generous policy towards asylum and let me close with the bit you'll all hate Um, but I see it all the time because a lot of my work is with the governments of post-conflict societies and their desperate problem is how do they get their skilled people back 
And the skilled people are the ones who've left. Of course, the poorest people in conflict zones, they don't come to high-income countries. They stagger across the border into a refugee camp. It's the elites that are able to get out to the high-income countries. And that's fine. It preserves them. It gives them a chance to accumulate human capital. But then, post-conflict, those elites face a coordination problem. Their governments say to them, please come back. And going back is a scary proposition. I wouldn't be surprised if there are plenty of you in the audience with just that dilemma. But it is a coordination problem. It's a whole lot less scary if a lot of people go back together than if only a few go back. And so the controversial proposal in Exodus is that those asylum rights for people fleeing conflict zones should actually be time-bound and related to conditions in those conflict countries. When the conflict ends, the rights of residents should, should taper. Now, it's important that that is done ex ante rather than ex post, because if people come to high-income countries knowing that when the conflict's over, they're going to go back, they're more likely to run their lives in a way that makes that manageable. But that is the controversial conclusion of Exodus, that um, the, the ultimate development challenge is the rebuilding the post-conflict countries. And for that, their big resource, their sovereign wealth funds, is their human capital out of the country. And at the moment, that human capital is not going back. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, uh, Paul. We now have uh, just about a half hour for questions. I'd like to take groups of three, and then we'll come back to you again. So, yeah, one there. Just wait just a second. Let me see if there's anyone else. Okay, fine, go ahead. Um, hi, Ipek Genshu, Institute for Public Policy Research and LSE alumnus. Um, I'd just like to go back to the super diversity and rate of absorption point. Would you... Um, what would your recommendations be on integration policy? And would you say that um, the, the rate of absorption of immigrants is, is just as important as the diversity? Because in a society where people um, do feel like they belong and get along uh, with, with the host communities, um, diversity might not be as much of a problem. Yeah, I do, I, 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 I do feel that. That I feel that um, we've gone... Um, we swung massively. Um, you know, I, I was a young man at the time of uh, American civil rights movement, where um, the this wasn't an immigration story, but it was about integrating African Americans into mainstream American society, and uh, the technique done for that was was busing, right? um, and uh, the. The, the, the radicals who advocated busing, people like me, I guess, um, would truly be horrified by the idea that nowadays um, it's fine if you get 
schools which are 90% um, homogeneous immigrant populations. You know, it, it seems to me that um, that, that isn't fine. Um, that, uh, that precisely for the reasons you sketch, that um, absorption, integration into society actually um, eases the problems of cooperation and trust. Um, uh, so, I, so I agree with you. But, but of course many people wouldn't. And I, I would stress it's, it's an option. Um, but the, the, the slower the rate of absorption, the slower the rate of immigration has to be. That in the book I describe um, the, uh, the impossible trinity. Um, the impossible trinity is a is something in macroeconomics about capital flows, but I suggest there's a second impossible trinity, which is um, wanting uh, um, very low rates of absorption, so multiculturalism, and wanting very fast immigration, and wanting uh, generous welfare systems. So I fear that that is an impossible trinity. Just before I take the next question, I just meant to remind you of the Twitter hashtag, which is HatchLSC uh, Exodus, if anyone wants to tweet. Another question? Yeah. Hi, my name is Philip, and I'm a master's in international relations here. Um, I'm particularly interested in a case study of uh, Greece, a place where, according to the Frontex, the EU border agency, 90% of uh, EU immigration or immigrants that come into the EU come through the Greece border. And so I'm really curious why this has not gained more attention in terms of the literature. And in a country that uh, is already experiencing significant financial woes, um, is experiencing uh, surges of like neo-Nazism and hatred towards um, uh, other cultures and other um, immigrants are coming from other countries, how can there be solutions for a better immigration policy and possible multiculturalism? Yeah, I mean, um, clearly Europe needs a pan-European policy on immigration. Um, the Lampedusa tragedy um, was, a, was an example of, of what, a, what a disaster policies are at the moment, I think. And let me, um, rather than Greece, let me talk a little bit about Lampedusa, which is, which is related. Um, and and this, is, this is very tough. Right? Um, so again, a lot of you will hate this. Um, but um, what are the solutions to the Lampedusa tragedy? And I should say the Lampedusa tragedy is just one incident. Something like 17,000 people have drowned trying to get to Lampedusa. So one boat hits the headlines, but there's 17,000 people have drowned trying to reach there. Right? Um, so clearly present policy is, is just unacceptable. We've got to rethink. So how can we rethink? Well, one possibility is just... Um, uh, Put on a ferry, let people come. Right? The only problem with that is everybody would come. Right? Um, so, um, you know, remember that 40% figure? It's, it's, it's basically saying um, poor societies are going to empty. They're going to empty of their brighter, more energetic people. Um, uh, so that's that sounds nice, but it isn't. Right? Um, so what's the alternative? The alternative uh, is to change the structure of hope. Um, at the moment, um, if you're a 
poor in Niger or Eritrea, um, your prospect of hope is get across the Sahara and then pay a load of cash to a Tunisian crook which tells you that it's the middle income groups that are basically going to be doing that Um, and then you risk your life, you play Russian roulette 17,000 of you drown you make it to a Lampedusa beach and you put your toe on it and then all of a sudden Europe showers you with things called human rights Um, and that's why you do it and the Italian authorities say, oh, God, we'd need, for every, for every illegal immigrant, we'd need two um, lawyers in order to send them back. So just tell them there's no jobs in Italy, head north, right? <laughs> um, and, and so there is a realistic chance, if you can get your toe on a beach in Lampedusa, that you end up in Germany. And it's that structure which is luring people to their deaths. So how do we change that? We can change it at each end. We've got to provide better opportunities for people who stay in Niger and Eritrea, opportunities to get to Europe. And above all, since a lot of the migrants are young, that means big expansions in students, students in Europe. You know? You stay in Eritrea, you stay in Niger, you can take part in an annual lottery for funded studentships in Europe. Yeah? But if you go across the Sahara, you pay your money to a Tunisian crook, you risk your life on a boat, and you end up on a beach in Lampedusa, that doesn't improve your chances at all. You go back. Yeah? That's the tough bit. Whilst ever you improve your chances by getting your toe on that Lampedusa beach that is what's luring people to their deaths and so it sounds like human rights but it's actually a giant inhuman wrong 17,000 people are drowned because of that structure that crazy structure of opportunity but that's tough Okay, here, just in the center of the first show of the upper. Um, hello. Uh, you seem to assume that educated leaders do a better job when they come back home, but how can you explain that some of the worst dictators uh, in Africa or in Asia actually got their education in democratic states? Um, for example, I'm thinking of Charles Taylor, who went to the United States and was highly supported there before he came back to Liberia. So, yeah, I just wanted to know. Yeah, the um, um, fortunately here, um, rigorous social science does come to our rescue because if you work from individual cases, you can line up great leaders, terrible leaders. Right? Um, but. <coughs> Again, in the last three years, we've learned more than we knew, you know, than, than in the previous 30. And so work at LSE, work in France by top quality researchers has established um, basically three propositions. One is that students who go back 
from democratic societies do speed the rate of democratization up to that educated leaders perform better than uneducated leaders and and three that educated leaders who got their education and lived in uh, the democratic societies uh, are doubly better leaders both because they're more educated and because they've got uh, more democratic attitudes does that apply to everybody absolutely not as you suggested Um, so it's a tendency but it is rigorously there as a significant effect Um, remember I wanted to I also said don't think this is the magic wand that will uh, change societies fundamentally and a lot of my work is about this fundamentally we're looking at domestic struggles in poor countries it's the people in those countries that have to change their societies Um, and so you can have high immigration and you get cap there. You can have high immigration and you get Eritrea. So the immigration is not the magic bullet, but it does have these benign effects on average. Question here again in the front row. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> my name's Tom Balker. Uh, I understand the optimal diversity point but um, by having any control on immigration you raise the cost of the investment of immigrating um, and therefore disincentivize people to ever go home so you sort of can lock them in by making it harder to get there in the first place so isn't that kind of counterproductive in that sense um, the well, you can, dif- you can distinguish between students. So you can, you can, student flows, you can, you can design in such a way that people after a while do go back home, either after their education or they can have an entitlement to work for a certain number of years and then go back. So uh, ex ante, you can set these rules in such a way that you get a, you get a student flow going back. Um, the, um, uh, but your, your other point, yeah, I, th- I think that's right. But, and indeed... Um, the, the, the emigrants from low-income societies who then settle in uh, the high-income countries in a way you want them to stay permanently in high-income countries. They become, they become, you know, you want them to integrate and just become part of the place. Um, and so it's a, in a way it's a bifurcated thing. You get a student flow going back and then you get, a, you get another flow which is just adding to the diversity uh, in a stimulating way of the high-income countries. Um, uh, but you're quite, you're quite right that, that if you make it hard to get in, um, the, once people are in, they'll be... Actually, let me take that back. If you, ha- if you give people sec- proper, properly defined legal rights, then that's not true. They can go back without jeopardising their ability to come in. The, the people who it applies to are the illegals. And I discuss, I've not discussed illegals tonight, but in the book I discuss it. And it seems to me a vital matter to legalise the stock of illegal immigrants. That in all, this, this applies more in America than Britain, but um, it's just crazy for everybody. America's got 12 million illegal immigrants who cannot legally work and that is, that, is, that is just dysfunctional on all possible counts. Um, it also makes it impossible to police 
uh, immigration controls, because the obvious point at which you could police immigration controls is the point of work. But if you've got a stock of 12 million people working illegally, uh, you can't enforce it. So legalizing the stock, the American right fears that that would uh, incentivize the flow. But actually, it's quite the opposite. Until you legalize the stock, you can't do anything about the flow, because you can't police it. Another question, uh, yeah, here in the blue. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I'm doing an MSc in human rights here. Um, you, you mentioned a couple of times um, about the sort of the re-establishment of an equilibria and the sort of the, uh, the abandonment of the idea of that um, income gap. <clears throat> Just with regards to uh, sort of resource depletion and the um, disproportionate allocation of those resources and geographical location of the resources, do you think it's realistic to assume that it's possible to um, sort of have that income gap completely um, re-established itself? Um, I mean, a lot of my work has been on sort of natural resources as a, and um, of course it's, historically natural resources have actually been a handicap on, uh, on, 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 on growth the, the, we talk about the resource curse so a lot of my work has been saying no, no, these have to be seen as an opportunity to be harnessed um, but even that is a sort of temporary opportunity, it's something that a lot of poor countries have discovered moderate amounts of natural resources which will give them a growth kick over the next 25 years if they handle it properly. Uh, and that will help them to, to catch up. After that, um, there's, uh, you know, there's no reason why a, a, a country like Kenya should be any poorer than a country like South Korea. Um, or Britain, for that matter. Yeah. Um, there's nothing. There's obviously nothing genetically condemning some people to poverty. It's a matter of social organisation, and so um, you will live to see a lot of convergence. Um, by the end of this century, um, uh, probably you know, sort of seventy percent of the world will have caught up, will have converged. So. There'll still be a, a poor 30%. Um, um, but, but yes, convergence will happen. Um, it'll be the great story of your lifetime. Yes, I thought for, for first, thanks, yeah. And of course, just to finish that, divergence is a relatively recent phenomenon. We go back, you know, we only have to go back 200 years, and, the, and, and we didn't have divergence. You know, so, so in the grand cycle of things, it's a sort of three to 400 year cycle in which um, a few countries get ahead and then the others catch up. Yeah, sorry. Good evening. Yeah. Uh, I was really very interested in your point about the country's immigration as a result of the conflict. Uh, now I'm thinking of the mentality of a person from a conflict background, and I know that the people who live in conflict-prone countries, they do not think of immigration unless they start to see that this conflict is prolonged and will take a long time. 
So they think and take the decision of immigration. On the other hand, you have proposed that the countries, the hosting countries, should make kind of limitations that will make these people's lives be managed on more as a te- on temporary and unstable basis. And going back to your point that um, the immigration has benefits for the hosting countries, I think that these three points contradict in some way. So what do you suggest for the hosting countries to keep the balance of these three contradicting factors? Okay. The, um, um, it's, of course, the, the, the host countries, the high-income countries, have a very strong interest in the conflict countries um, getting out of conflict permanently and catching up. Because in the 21st century, um, as prosperity spreads, um, pockets of uh, desperate fragility um, become, if you like, a sort of global public bad. They're a nightmare. Somalia, Afghanistan, they're not just bad for Somalis and Afghanis, though they are. Um, They're a nightmare for globally. And so America's just spent $3 trillion um, in in, disastrous failed attempts to to get uh, Iraq and Afghanistan to to catch up. Absolutely the wrong way, right? Um, uh, but what that tells you is um, if, the, if the right answer is um, uh, get people to go back then host countries clearly have you know, have it in their interest to say okay we'll do that um, now it's tough for the people who leave as you imply their life is in a sense on hold um, and I don't want to pretend otherwise um, it's a lot less tough for the elites that get out than for the non-elites, the non-elite majority that stays in these societies or just staggers across the border into a refugee camp. These conflict situations are, are ghastly. Um, and uh, there is no simple painless fix. Um, but the big resource of these societies partly as I said the societies basically have to reform from within it's not something that the you know, rich societies can do for them and the people who will build their societies out of conflict and poverty are the elites of these societies and so they're needed back home um, but they do face, people do face this coordination problem. That's why, at the moment, people don't go back. Um, it's easy for me to say that. I'm not faced with that dilemma. A lot of my students are faced with that dilemma, and I see the agony in their, in their faces, in their decisions. So I don't want to pretend it's other than tough. We just have time for one more question. I'd like to go back to the person who was uh, there before. Good evening. Um, my name is Alexander Kasper. I'm a, a student here at LSE. Um, my question would be, how big has the income gap 
have to be for actually people to move and for it to be significant? I'm coming to that question because looking at the EU, you maybe have not these major differences from a developing country to a developed country, but at least you have um, a GDP of Luxembourg, which is about six times higher than of Hungary. And now you may say, well, that's not such a big difference, but, I mean, in the EU, there's almost no cost of moving. I mean, with the liberalization of the four freedoms of yeah. movement, it's very easy to move. And yet, the number of people who actually moved are way lower than what member states expected. So is maybe um, the economic incentive not big enough? Or how would you explain that? Um, Thank you. The, well, of course, uh, and if, we, if we go to the, the most famous migration within Europe, the, the, the Polish migration to Britain, um, it was way bigger than expected. Um, so, um, you know, so, so these movements can be pretty large. Um, the... Um, uh, What's, what's preserving, what's, what's preventing mass movement in Europe is a mixture of things, languages, um, uh, um, welfare systems, which basically there are sort of limited entitlements in most countries. Um, Britain's unusual in uh, having a welfare entitlement system that isn't based upon past contributions in, the, in continental Europe Entitlement tends to be based on past contributions. Um, so, um, my guess is that you'll see really quite big movements in Europe, within Europe. Um, and let's let's end where I started. Um, the big accelerator of migration is the diasporas. And so, if you start with not many Hungarians in Luxembourg, not a lot of Hungarians will move to Luxembourg. But some will, and that will gradually build the number of the, the Hungarian diaspora in Luxembourg. And then it's a race. How fast are the Hungarians in Luxembourg absorbed into Luxembourg uh, relative to that uh, lowering of the costs? Not the financial costs in this case, but the information costs of bringing more Hungarians in. Okay. So let's, let's end with that acceleration point, um, which is where we started. Well, before uh, asking you to join with me in thanking the speaker, I'd like to say that there is a book sale taking place now of uh, Exodus outside the theatre, and then there'll be a book signing here on the stage. So if you're interested in doing so, please pick up your book first outside and then come back on stage where Paul will be available to sign the books. I hope you all join me in thanking Paul for a very stimulating talk. <laughs>